Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three big geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. When you pull up a map of Europe, whether it be from the Roman era, from World War One, World War Two, or even the Cold War, one of the most important areas to focus on is the Black Sea. The Black Sea is home to the Bosphorus, what was once the centre of the known world. The Crimean Peninsula, home to Russia's Black Sea fleet and one of the largest tension points in all of Europe. It's home to Bulgaria and Romania, NATO's southern front lines. It's even home to Georgia and its breakaway republic of Abkhazia. The Black Sea has been the location of many of the world's great cities and has sustained many large empires. Everyone from the Russians to the Ottomans, the Germans, the British, the Persians, and even the Romans fought wars for this crucial waterway. So we all know how important the Black Sea is. But let's go 400 kilometers eastwards now and find a sea that's almost as big as the Black Sea, but has far less attention. This sea, the Caspian Sea, has even more underground resources than the Black Sea. A sea with navies from Russia, Azerbaijan, Iran, Kazakhstan, and Turkmenistan. A sea with enough natural gas to change the European energy market forever. And a sea that Russia continues to launch missiles into Syria from. So let's actually take a look at the geopolitics of the Caspian Sea and ask, who controls the Caspian Sea? And to talk more about that, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. A Soviet Lake Right, so the Caspian Sea is part of the... Eurasian land bridge. So it's located in the, the border zone between Europe and Asia. The, the different uh, littoral countries are Russia to the north, you have Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan to the east, Iran to the south, and Azerbaijan to the west. So it's in this uh, really strategic location, um, a, you know, a geopolitical borderland, a, a, a commercial transit zone, one that has a lot of uh, resources at stake, primarily energy. Uh, so it's really located in the heart of, of, of the Eurasian continent. Eugene Chalsovsky is a geopolitical analyst and speaker for the Center for Global Policy. He's also a lecturer at the Foreign Service Institute and has written and presented articles on Eurasia for everyone from Al Jazeera to the Wall Street Journal. He joins us today. During the Soviet era, you know, this was basically just a, a sea that was shared by only two countries. There was the Soviet Union and Iran, and and the Soviet Union had by far, the, you know, the the uh, you know the vast majority of the the maritime rights and 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 the ter the territorial control. When the Soviet Union collapsed, um, and then you had the emergence of uh, essentially three new countries uh, in in the form of Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan. In addition to Russia, you know, kind of taking on the mantle uh, of, of the former Soviet Union, that's when things got a lot more complicated. Instead of having just two countries sharing 
uh, the Caspian Sea. Now you have five. And especially with, with all of those energy resources at stake, like I mentioned before, and these sort of new and still, um, you, you know, these countries, the smaller former Soviet countries were kind of trying to um, establish themselves uh, economically, politically. So, you know, having control and having access to those resources was really important. But because Russia was still a major player and then you also have Iran, that's what's really been um the sticking point to uh, you know a major agreement over how exactly to, to classify and divide up the sea. One of the first things you notice when you compare maps of the Black and Caspian Seas is that the Black Sea has all these huge cities like Istanbul, Varna, Odessa, Sevastopol, but the Caspian has very little in the way of large cities. It's kind of just Astrakhan, a little bit up the Volga River in Russia, and Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan. Why does the Caspian Sea have so few major cities compared to, let's say, the Black Sea? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, well, I think the biggest reason is, un- unlike the Black Sea, which is also this, you know, land bridge, uh, Eurasian uh, area sea, um, the Caspian is landlocked. Uh, so it doesn't have access to the wider ocean like the Black Sea does through the Mediterranean. Uh, yeah, and, and as you said, there aren't the the really big uh, cosmopolitan type of cities like you have in, you know, in Istanbul. So this is a fairly remote location, uh, but one that is nevertheless very important strategically. Uh, and Baku, which is the biggest city and the most, uh, I guess you could say the most important uh, city being Azerbaijan's capital, is also the area where a lot of um, oil and natural gas deposits are, are located um, and the starting point of some very important uh, transcontinental infrastructure. So I'm thinking um, of, of pipelines like the, the BTC and the BTE pipeline, the oil and natural gas pipelines, uh, which start in Baku and then go through Georgia, through Turkey and into Europe. Um, you have some other infrastructure that's been developed on a more regional scale. Uh, so, but yeah, in, in terms of population centers and, and in terms of, you know, high uh, density areas, it, it's just not there. The climate really isn't conducive to it either because you have, you know, Western Turkmenistan and, and Western Kazakhstan. That's that's mostly desert or steppe area, which doesn't allow for a lot of population. I mean, Russia's population centers are located far farther up to the north uh, in places like Moscow and St. Petersburg. So um, it's it's a part of, of geography in terms of the actual terrain, um, and then in terms of the re- remoteness of the location. But like I said, because of the um, the the geopolitical context, it is still nevertheless very important. So is this an important trade route for the Caspian nations? You know, when Russia trades with Iran, are they using the Caspian to transport, or are they just sticking to the traditional land-based methods? There is some uh, regional trade that happens between Russia and Iran and between some of the, the smaller countries as well. Uh, but, but the trade uh, is, is relatively limited. I mean, this is an area that is, has a lot of potential, but the infrastructure for, for major trade just isn't there yet. Now, having said that, I think when you look at um, other players like China, for example, and, and the Belt and Road Initiative, so the Caspian Sea is actually kind of sandwiched in between two very key uh, uh, priority areas for China in developing Belt and Road. So one being Eurasia, which includes Russia and the Central Asian countries, and the other being uh, the Middle East, 
and Iran uh, is really a key aspect of that as well because it it provides further transit onto uh, Middle East and Europe as well. So uh, because these countries that are the actual maritime uh, Caspian littoral states, their economies are not uh, not huge. I mean, you have you do have Russia, you do have Iran, uh, but these are primarily energy um, economies, and there's not a lot of trade because you know they're sending energy supplies onto the, the wider world. Now, what could change that, like I said, is China really to help de- develop that infrastructure. But there's a lot of uh, political and security issues that get in the way of that as well. Many of which we'll be talking about later on in this episode. But for now, the biggest military on the Black Sea is obviously Russia's. But how seriously does the Russian Navy take its role in the Caspian Sea? How does Russia's Caspian fleet compare to, let's say, its fleets in the Baltic or Black Sea? Right. So, I mean, if you're comparing it to Russia's other uh, fleets on the Black Sea or on the Baltic Sea, it's substantially smaller um, levels uh, on the Caspian Sea. Uh, But again, it's all relative. So, you know, Russia has a a lot more assets there um, and it it is more active there than the comparably smaller uh, navies of, of Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan. And, you know, very small when you talk about Turkmenistan. And then you have you do have a sizable um, Iranian presence there as well. We have seen some skirmishes, um, you know, in the past in the Caspian, but those have been relatively contained. And because you don't have NATO or or Western countries really present there in a military sense, that that uh, really limits the amount of activity that you can see in the Caspian. Most of the major governing principles of the Caspian Sea come from the Aqdal Treaty, signed in Western Kazakhstan in 2018 between the five coastal nations. Those five nations being Russia, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Iran, and Azerbaijan. The treaty delineated the sea up into nautical zones, gave guidelines and frameworks for the energy exploration, and also precluded any nation from deploying a navy in the sea who did not fly the flag of one of the five signatories. So NATO, for example, could never put ships into the Caspian Sea, as none of the five signatories are part of NATO. Russia was one of the major forces behind this agreement. So what do you think they were hoping to get from it? Well, I think that was, that agreement uh, is a testament to, to the influence that Russia has in this area. So Russia, I mean, it, Russia's imperative throughout all of the former Soviet Union, whether you're talking about land or sea, is to uh, essentially limit or, or prevent the, the presence and influence of external powers, especially the West, and to really enhance its own to the extent possible. So when you talk about the Caspian Sea, um, there really aren't any uh, countries there that you can classify as, as pro-Western. Um, again, unlike the Black Sea, where you have not only NATO countries, but also Ukraine, which has certainly shifted its foreign policy to the West. I mean, the closest country you could argue would be Azerbaijan, uh, which does have a cooperative relationship with the West. I mean, there's the energy exports that I already mentioned. It's a part of the Eastern Partnership Program. It has flirted with, with you know, certain cooperation with the EU um, and, and NATO countries, but that, but that has fallen uh, far short of an actual alliance. But that's something that Russia is always wary of. And so if you're talking about Azerbaijan or to a lesser extent Kazakhstan, um, this is... These are countries that the U.S. Um, has looked to uh, cooperate with and to, especially from a security perspective, given how strategic they are or could be encountering 
um, both Russia and Iran, which are two of the U.S.'s primary competitors, if you will, or challengers. Uh, so in that sense, it's Russia's imperative to, to limit that influence. And, and that's kind of the, uh, the context in which we've seen, um, you know, these countries not allow, um, you know, the U.S. or NATO or any other uh, foreign powers to really establish a foothold there just because of the, the stakes involved. So this agreement obviously has benefits for Russia and its foreign strategic goals. But what does, let's say, Kazakhstan or Turkmenistan get out of this one? I think you have to look at these countries all, um, you know, individually. I mean, f- from Turkmenistan's standpoint, it- it's it's essentially been one of the most uh, isolationist countries in the former Soviet Union. Um, it's really um, a- averse to any kind of um, alliance, especially in the security sphere, with any foreign power. And now that includes the West, that but that also includes Russia, with Turkmenistan um, not signing up to the, the CSTO, Russia's primary military alliance in the former Soviet countries. Um, so from that sense, you know, it was never really a threat um, or it was never really an issue that Turkmenistan was going to allow some foreign presence on its territory. It, it makes sense if you, if you think about it, but each, each country has its own motivations and its own reasoning for, for not allowing um, that, that military presence. And I think f- for all of these countries, um, Introducing any element of of a of another power of an external power in a military security sense would just really increase the potential for instability and the potential for for conflict happening. Whereas if you keep those out, at least it's still a, a limited regional context. So, from the point of view of Moscow, all five nations are fairly friendly at the moment. But what do you think the chances that that changes and they may be in conflict with one of these five nations on the Caspian? I think that those rivalries certainly exist um, and they could grow in the future. But I, I see that there's going to be some underlying tensions there. There, there are opportunities for, for expansion of in- infrastructure, albeit limited. Um, and yeah, I, I think that uh, it, it, because, of its, um, because of its location, it will always be important, but it will always face uh, significant limitations. Now that that's you know that could be um, you know a negative thing on the economic front, but on, on the flip side, I think there's not going to be that kind of very intense activity, uh, especially from you know the external powers, uh, especially from the West that that seems to uh, shape and, and drive uh, more contentious areas um, like the Black Sea. Uh, so in that sense, I see it being relatively calm, relatively peaceful over the, the the next 20 years. But, you know, as we've seen in just the last few months alone, it, you know, things can be subject to change very quickly. During the Soviet era, Russia enjoyed the control of around 85% of the coast of the Caspian Sea. Its only challenger being Iran, a nation that it formed fairly close ties with after the revolution, since both sides were very keen to keep the US out of their perspective backyards. But what is the situation now, with three new nations to negotiate with? What is Russia's standing in the Caspian like today? And what are the long-term goals for Moscow when it comes to the Caspian Sea? Well, for that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. Big Fish in a Small Pond (laughs) 
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The Caspian Sea is very, very significant area in Eurasian uh, meteorite because it occupies central part of these, the biggest meteorite in the world. And at the same time, this is the biggest lake, uh, internal lake without connection with the world ocean. Stanislav Prichin was a senior fellow specializing in Russia for the London-based think tank Chatham House and is now a senior fellow for the Expert Center for Eurasian Development in Moscow. He is also an expert for the Geneva Center for Security Policy and an expert on Russian strategic development. He joins us today. Of course, the Soviet area is a very interesting in the history of the Caspian Sea, but uh, fundamental basis and uh, legal basis of this stage was created earlier after the several Russian-Iranian, Russian-Persian wars in the beginning of 19th century according to the results of uh, what uh, Russia began the key player, especially in trade and security in this area. Of course, for the young Soviet Republic, relations with uh, uh, neighboring countries was quite important. And that is why at the beginning, Russia and the Soviet Union agreed with Iran to use it see together. Uh, as equal partners. But then, of course, especially during the Second World War and with dominance of uh, Soviet uh, army and economy in the region, of course, Russia played a key role in the region and uh, Iranian position and Iranian navy was insignificantly on the low level in accordance especially with Russian dominance in this region. So of all the Caspian nations, who has the biggest navy on the Caspian Sea? Uh, Russia has the biggest uh, military power in the Caspian Sea region. This is the so-called Russian flotilla. Uh, Originally, uh, Russia has uh, its... mm, so-called military town, where uh, usually uh, such bases uh, occupies. Next to Astrakhan, the biggest Russian city on the uh, Caspian Sea. But uh, to be perfectly honest, this is not the Caspian Sea. This is the part of the Volga River, the biggest river uh, in in the region. But two years ago, Russian government decided to move this uh, navy from uh, Astrakhan region to Dagestan. And now uh, in the process, uh, the construction of creation, the biggest uh, navy base in Kaspisk city, not far from Mahachkala, the capital of Dagestan Republic of Russia. It's... uh, Historically, Russian Navy is the strongest in the region, and the uh, uh, modern ship of Russian Navy is still the, the most powerful player in the region. Uh, the explanation of this decision mostly uh, 
about logistics because Astrakhan and the north part of the Caspian Sea usually uh, freezes in the winter time and that is why you not always can use this uh, equipment and uh, your capacity during the winter time and that is why it was made a decision to to move it towards the more warmer part of the sea without ice so to get an idea of comparison here if we were to combine all of the other players navies together would that rival russia's caspian fleet this is not the question about the number of ships this is the question about their military capacity and uh, and at the same time how huge infrastructure on the littoral area so from such point of view, uh, in comparison with altogether fleet of Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan and uh, Azerba- uh, Kazakhstan, I suppose that it may be equal from the point of view of size, but from the point of view of uh, military capacity, of course, Russian uh, fleet in flotilla is much more powerful than its counterparts in the region. We talked about it in our piece on Turkmenistan, but one of the biggest game changers for this region is the Trans-Caspian Pipeline. This would pump gas from Turkmenistan, across the Caspian Sea into Azerbaijan, then onto Georgia, Turkey, and then into Europe. This pipeline would connect Europe with the vast natural gas fields of Turkmenistan, although Russia has never been very keen on the project going ahead. Why is that? As you know, uh, energy resources is the very important part of Russian export. In such circumstances, of course, Russia considers uh, regional players, especially Turkmenistan, the fourth biggest owner of gas reserves, as the potential competitor and the European market. From such perspective, of course, uh, Trans-Caspian pipeline absolutely is not in interest of Russian uh, players, especially first of all, Gazprom, uh, and in such circumstances, of course, uh, a pipeline with the high capacity, uh, approximately 10 uh, billion cubic meters per year, is a quite uh, dangerous from the point of view of ecology. And uh, uh, before the signing of Convention of Legal Status of the Caspian Sea, which was signed in Aktau in August 2018. Special protocol of Trans-Caspian projects was signed as well. And this protocol is a a compromise. For example, if Turkmenistan and Azerbaijan one day decide to construct Trans-Caspian pipeline, they have to uh, give uh, transparent information about technical aspects and geographical trajectory of this project and then they have to accept uh, recommendations from its partners about for example the uh, size of pipe or something like this which from the point of view of neighboring countries would help to protect environment in the region so this document creates a system of common responsibility for any big projects but there is no any procedures to blocking for example the, these uh, projects russia have been saying for a while now that they want to dramatically increase the amount of trade they do with iran but obviously being a great distance away from each other there will be some logistical problems around that if the trade is to be increased with tehran 
infrastructure along the routes will need to be improved. And with limited funds, Russia probably doesn't have enough to do all three options. So which route do you think Russia will go with to improve their trade routes with Tehran? Do you think they'll focus on building up the proposed train lines between Russia and Iran through Azerbaijan? Focus on the highway corridors through Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan? Or simply focus on using the Caspian Sea for transportation? Which routes do you think Russia should be focusing on here? Yeah, uh, there, there are several projects. Firstly, within the global idea of construction, transcontinental, uh, the south-north uh, uh, transport corridor. The problem of this project is uh, mostly related with Iranian position. The initiative about this project was suggested in 2010 and the first documents was signed and used uh, around this date. But then, since uh, 2000, we have 20 years and Azerbaijan uh, completed all uh, changes uh, and development in its, in, in its internal uh, infrastructure, transport infrastructure. Russian infrastructure also is ready to, for direct connection through Azerbaijan, through uh, Iranian railway to the Persian Gulf with India. The only uh, problem is Iran. Iran hasn't still finished its part of uh, railway. And uh, the latest prognosis said that next year Iran, Iran will finish its part of the railway. The problem, uh, another problem of regional trade is that almost all players uh, uh, export the same number and the same list of uh, goods, mostly energy resources, agricultural uh, products. And in such circumstances, it's quite difficult to find a uh, basis uh, for uh, drastically improve and increase uh, trade in the region. Many of the Russian missiles and rockets fired into Syria originated from Russian naval vessels in the Caspian Sea. Why would Russia launch their missiles from the Caspian when they have naval bases in the Black and Mediterranean seas? I uh, assume that it was very important symbolic step. Of course, it's quite expensive to use such uh, technologies to to attack uh, terrorist ba bases in Syria uh, rather than use uh, jets uh, in Syria from from the Russian base there. But it was quite a symbolic and significant step of showing its capacity to do it uh, from the Caspian Sea. Do you think we might see a further role from China on the Caspian Sea going forward? It's interesting question because uh, this is the secret for everybody. Uh, would or not China to use its economic huge economics present in the region to, to send its troops to protect the investments. Uh, a lot of rumors about these uh, haven't dis have discussed in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan and Tajikistan because in this area in Central Asia, China is now is the number one investor. But the only one uh, uh, evidence of this was the publication in uh, New York Times about uh, temporary base 
in Gorno-Badakhshan Republic on the border uh, on Tajik area on the border with China and Afghanistan without any official uh, statements from Tajik government. So uh, this is the case where China has a lot of uh, interests in uh, economy, in transportation, but without a real uh, presence, military presence on the ground. Going forward, do you think Russia will be taking the Caspian Sea more seriously, building up infrastructure in places like Astrakhan? Or do you think the Caspian will continue to take a back seat to places like the Baltic, the Black and the Arctic Seas? On the one hand, we can consider uh, the Caspian Sea as a backyard of Russian uh, foreign policy, uh, mostly because Russia achieved its main goal uh, about security of this region, about uh, territorial uh, negotiations with Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan. But at the same time, for example, if you uh, take a look at the activities of Russian, the biggest Russian oil uh, private company Lukoil, uh, it's quite a successful story when uh, Lukoil uh, is developing uh, several uh, offshore projects uh, in the Russian sector of the Caspian Sea, testing uh, offshore technologies of production of uh, oil and gas. This is quite significant and volume of oil and gas which Lukoil produces in this area has been increasing from year to year. The same uh, with uh, reserves of Gazprom and Rosneft. For them, the, they have both of these companies uh, have some activities in the region, but uh, due to the priorities far from the Caspian Sea, mostly in Siberia and the Arctic Ocean uh, region, of course, the Caspian Sea is a uh, looks like periphery for their interest. In such circumstances, Lukoil is relatively more active and more successful in this area. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more, we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So Russia needs all of its neighbors to be friendly, but also doesn't want the Trans-Caspian Pipeline to come to fruition. Because Moscow knows competition for the dominance of the European gas market is not good at all for Russia. But what do the other four nations on the Caspian want? What are the strategic goals for countries like Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan when it comes to the Caspian Sea? Well, for that, we turn to our final guest. Part 3. Pipe Dreams. Well, the Caspian Sea is 
a unique body of water in the center of Eurasia that is bordered by Russia, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Iran, and Azerbaijan. And if you zoom out uh, from the Caspian Sea, you get eventually Siberia, you get China, uh, you get, of course, India, but there are the Himalayas in the way, and you get the South Caucasus, and even, you know, you get over to the Black Sea. So although it seems a bit remote and isolated uh, on the map, uh, especially because of the uh, energy resources, it is, in fact, a uh, very important region to the great powers in the area, and even to uh, the United States and the European Union. Robert M. Cutler is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert on Eurasia for the NATO Association of Canada. Robert is the expert when it comes to energy policy and strategic issues in Central Asia, and we're very pleased to have him join us today. Well, clearly the biggest player is and always has been Russia. Uh, since they expanded into Central Asia in the 19th century. One of the major points of the Actel Treaty was to determine whether the Caspian was a sea or a lake legally. Why does this make a difference between lake and sea in real terms? Well, yes, this was a question of trying to find a legal regime for the sea after the Soviet Union fell apart because the old Soviet-Iranian situation arrangement didn't work because you had three new independent states. The proposals at the time, uh, none of which, neither of which, in fact, was adopted, and I'll explain why. But the significance was that if it was to be considered an international sea, then uh, the law of the sea convention would apply. Each state would claim full jurisdiction of 12 nautical miles from the shoreline, with an exclusive economic zone of over 24, of another 24 miles. And outside of that, there would be this area in the center of the sea that uh, the regime for which would not have been decided. Russia had a proposal in the mid-90s that it should be subject to a joint use, that nothing should be able to be done without everybody agreeing to it uh, in this area. Uh, And and so this is one of the reasons why things remained uh, undecided for for so long. Uh, The other option under international law was to consider the Caspian as an inland lake. Now, what that would have meant was that no coastal state would have been able to take unilateral action to establish national control over seabed resources without the agreement of all the others. So you'd have like a free veto. Any one of of, of them could say uh, that uh, you can't do what what you want to do because I won't let you. In fact, the Aktau agreement arrived at a third arrangement, which could have sort of been foreseen uh, in the beginning, that like the Black Sea, in fact, the Caspian Sea has a sui generis arrangement because it's a unique body of water. It has a unique legal regime that's not either an inland lake or an international sea. But all of these points were hammered out over the course of negotiations. And the major point is for Russia, the major point uh, is that no uh, non-littoral country can put ships, including warships, into the Caspian Sea so that any flag other than those five that I've mentioned uh, is forbidden. And that was important to them because they're the dominant naval power there and they wish to remain so. Uh, the other major point 
was uh, that due to the insistence of particularly Turkmenistan and Azerbaijan, uh, the national sectors of the seabed uh, collectively exhaust the seabed. And it's not the case that every country of the five has to agree with any project to lay pipelines or exploit resources, for example. For example, that's the famous Trans-Caspian Pipeline project uh, between Turkmenistan and Azerbaijan. The two countries share uh, a, a border under sea. And so if they decide to build this pipeline, the Oktau Treaty enshrines which they always had the right to do under international law, but this makes it absolutely irrevocable, uh, that uh, they don't need anyone else's permission to do that. The other, the other countries can ask questions, what about environmental uh, conservation, but they can't veto it. And those are the two major points of the Octal Treaty. Russia conserves its naval uh, influence, superior influence, and uh, resource exploita exploitation is not dependent on unanimity. So in the negotiations, there became two different camps on how to divide up the Caspian Sea. Russia and the ex-Soviet countries wanted to divide up the sea proportional to their share of the coastline, whereas Iran wanted to divide the sea equally into five parts. Can you take us through why Iran would be vying for this second option? Well, because if they if they follow the rules of international law, then Iran only gets 13 or 14 percent. Uh, there's a rule uh, called the modified median line, which I won't go into explaining, but it's a rule for uh, drawing the lines that uh, divide uh, the seabed. It's it's a well-used rule. It's, it's, it's conventional. Uh, and uh, the other thing to know about the Caspian Sea is that it's, in a way, I won't say it's two different seas, but the north and the south are very different, and the south is very deep. And Iran, of course, is in the south, so it does not have the technology to um, explore or exploit uh, its energy resources in its offshore, because that's a very advanced uh, technology and due to the uh, various embargoes and so on, uh, they don't have access to it, except they got, uh, they, they, they probably smuggled in uh, a Swedish design around 2008 and domestically constructed uh, a uh, one platform, uh, but it doesn't, but, but not going out very far. In terms of major funding and infrastructure projects, the Caspian Sea cities have always taken a second place to the Black Sea cities. Why do you think that's the case? Well, that's a very good question. And the answer would be that uh, Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan are newly independent states. Uh, when they were part of the Soviet Union or of uh, the Russian Empire, Russia had an astrakhan, uh, which uh, obviated the need for any other port. Uh, there is uh, in Kazakhstan an important city uh, in the south on the coast, which mainly industrial. Um, the old Soviet name is Norvi Uzen. It's been changed since then. I don't remember it offhand. <laughs> um, uh, but that's mainly industrial, uh, not energy-related uh, city. And as for Iran, uh, the uh, history of Persian civilization 
has been concentrated uh, in areas away from the Caspian region. All of the great uh, conurbations of, of the Persian of the various Persian empires uh, and of Iran uh, are away from the Persepolis, uh, Tehran, and therefore not regarded as of uh, great strategic interest uh, until these new resources, uh, energy resources, were able to be exploited in the post-Soviet era because the Soviets didn't have the technology to do it. And now they're seen as being more strategic regions uh, than they were in the past. Well, staying on Iran here, what do you think Tehran's overall strategic goals are in the Caspian Sea? Well, I think that desperately they want to exploit the energy resources. Uh, that's aside from general prestige questions to which I alluded before. The only benefit of the Caspian to them is if they would be able to uh, exploit the energy resources in their offshore. But as I said, it's very deep. They don't have the technology and they're um, barred from acquiring the technology. In fact, one of the side deals for uh, the Octal Treaty was that the Russians would build platforms for the Iranians in Astrakhan and float them across uh, to the relatively not so deep part of the deep southern Caspian and uh, for Iran's benefit. Uh, this was one of the ways in which Iran's agreement was, was, was bought, if you, if you, to, to put it that way. We're looking to the north now. The Caspian is the only sea Kazakhstan has access to. So the region is incredibly important to Nur Sultan, the capital of Kazakhstan. Can you take us through why the Caspian is so important to Kazakhstan and what their overall strategic goals might be here in the region? Well, I think it's convenient here to uh, mention Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan together because aside from uh, securing the access to and the egress of their energy resources, uh, Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan and a number of other countries to the east and the west, from uh, China to uh, Turkey and uh, East Central Europe, are cooperating in what's called the Trans-Caspian International Transport Route, uh, which is an infrastructure project uh, for transportation of commodities and containerization and so on and so on. And... Uh, Baku, in fact, has built up a very impressive port uh, with multimodal capabilities uh, to play this role. And uh, Kazakhstan also uh, has uh, done this in, uh, on its coast. Uh, and so that is uh, the, the economic benefit that could come from participating in such a transport route intercontinental from Asia to Europe. Uh, is one of the uh, definite interests of both Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan in uh, in the Caspian region, and they've been cooperating for some years on this. As you can, might imagine, uh, that such infrastructure construction requires a, a very specific technical cooperation. In your opinion, with almost all of Kazakhstan's major trade routes and energy infrastructure going through Russian territory, they may be trying to diversify their trade routes here in case things ever go bad with Moscow. Well, well, yes, of course, and that's exactly what they're doing um, because uh, from Akhtau to Baku, there are 
other markets that you can serve. You know, you go, the, the routes will go into Turkey, they'll go into Southeast Europe, and because the distances are less than the distances uh, through European Russia, then the uh, cost of the transport is uh, more um, economically efficient, and the route will be uh, more, they hope, uh, more patronized by, by shippers. And would this also apply to Turkmenistan? Would they have similar goals for the region? Well, yes, Turkmenistan uh, is also involved there. They're building up infrastructure on their uh, coast. Uh, there is, in fact, uh, a project. There's a, a town called Kurik, which is near Akhtau, uh, which they've been building up uh, for this purpose of uh participating in, in a route uh, of commodity transport. Uh, also, uh, what's important to them uh, is eventually the Trans-Caspian pipeline, gas pipeline, as well as uh, a project, uh, which I should mention also from, from Kazakhstan, I didn't have, I didn't mention it, the so-called Trans-Caspian oil transport system, because Kazakhstan, as you may know, has enormous resources in its northeast. There's the Tengiz oil field, which is onshore, and there's the Kashagan gas and condensate field, which is offshore. And after years and years of development, in fact, just today, literally just this morning, I saw that they're going ahead with the um, next investment stage in Kashagan. They have uh, this Trans-Caspian oil transport system, which has been on the on the drawing boards for about a dozen years, since 2007, in fact, when French President Sarkozy uh, uh, welcomed Nazarbayev in Paris. Uh, and uh, that would be a way to get uh, more Kazakhstani energy to uh, Europe. Now, Kazakhstan is going to have a problem in the next few years. They are going forward with the uh, next stages of development, not only of the Kashagan offshore oil and condensate field, but also of the onshore Tengiz oil field. They don't have enough pipelines to carry the anticipated production. So uh, Kazakhstan's interest is to find, find consumers and find ways to markets for this. Uh, which Turkmenistan also shares. Because Turkmenistan, as you may know, uh, almost all their exports now go to China uh, because uh, a little bit of, they've, they've started exporting a little bit to Russia again, but not, not by no means like one-tenth of the volume that they used to. And so uh, Turkmenistan also shares in, in, in this Trans-Caspian corridor uh, desire. What about Azerbaijan? Should they be worried about the Russian dominance of the Caspian Sea or the fact that Russia is moving their Caspian naval base much closer to Azeri waters? How do you view the Russians' move here? Do you think moving from Astrakhan to Kaspis is a signal to Baku that Russia is taking the Caspian more seriously? Or is moving the fleet into Dagestan, a historically problematic region for Moscow in the same vein as Chechnya, just simply a jobs program, putting more jobs into a region that Putin can't afford to piss off? What do you think? No, you're you're correct that that the Russians are building a new naval base in their uh, in Dagestan at Kaspisk, and they are going to transfer their main uh, operations to there from uh, from uh, Astrakhan. But 
the Azerbaijanis and the Russians are actually strategic partners. Um, there is, if you'll notice, uh, the recent uh, Nagorno-Karabakh issues, the Russians haven't come in on the side of the Armenians, which is what all other things being equal from a very great distance people would have expected, but it's not happening. Uh, and it won't happen, at least not so long as the current prime minister is there. And they're certainly not going to send uh, troops there uh, unless they're peacekeeping troops, which the Azerbaijanis won't, probably won't accept. Uh, but uh, to return to your question about Azerbaijan, no, um, they're not concerned. Uh, it's not a zero-sum game. Azerbaijan, uh, from 2005... Uh, to 2008, they bought $5 billion of Russian military equipment. Uh, although Russia is now their sec still remains their second largest military uh, and weapon system supplier. And Azerbaijan has done a very good job of hedging. You know, it has these relations with the U.S. and Europe and, and Iran. Good relations with Iran uh, because of their situation. Very good relations with Turkey. So Azerbaijan's as it always has been, stuck in the middle <laughs> amongst Russia, Turkey, and Iran, they've done a very good job of keeping their margins of maneuver uh, open. Uh, and uh, President Aliyev of, in Baku and President Putin in Moscow have very good personal relations. Uh, and the militaries of the two countries uh, have very good relations. So uh, I don't believe that Azerbaijan has uh, any trepidation uh, over Russia, uh, even if Russia is moving its uh, fleet uh, and its headquarters from Astrakhan to Kaspisk. An increasingly big player in this region is Turkey. Does Ankara have a strategy for the Caspian Sea? Well, Turkey per se, of course, as you remark implicitly, is not a, a literal state of the Caspian. Uh, Turkey's uh, interest in the Caspian uh, mainly has to do with the pipelines because the uh, fabled southern gas corridor of the Euro that the European Union has been building, which begins in Baku uh, and uh, goes through Tbilisi into eastern uh, Turkey and then crosses Turkey with the so-called TANAP pipeline, which is the Turkish acronym for Trans-Anatolian Natural Gas Pipeline, the TANAP pipeline. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th then crosses Greece and ends in southern Italy through the TAP, which is the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline. Uh, this pipeline uh, needs to be filled. 
uh, and also it is supplying gas to Turkey itself. They off take gas from uh, the flow and the uh, SGC, the Southern Gas Corridor, which is the these three pipelines taken together uh, uh, from Baku to Turkey, across Turkey, and then across Greece to Italy. Um, it's it's the construction's complete. It's going to open in the very near future. And so Turkey's interest, as well as Azerbaijan's interest, because it's the Azerbaijani uh, state oil corporation, which includes gas, um, uh, Sokar uh, of the Azerbaijani Republic, is the majority owner of TANAP. In fact, Azerbaijan is the largest foreign direct investor in Turkey, believe it or not, uh, because of, thanks to the energy infrastructure. So it's in their common interest to uh, assure and to expand the volumes of gas that might flow through uh, the uh, southern gas corridor, including the TANAP Trans-Anatolian gas pipeline. If the Trans-Caspian pipeline is completed and goes into operation, and the gas is flowing freely from Turkmenistan all the way through to Europe, do you think this will put a dent in the political leverage Russia has over Europe through their reliance on Russian gas exports? Exactly. Um, the German, uh, the, Ger the Germans have tried to build the Nord Stream 2 because they're uncomfortable uh, with their sole dependence on the route through uh, for, uh, Russian gas through Ukraine and Poland. Long story short, uh, even if NS2 is built, any final political decision about it will be challenged in the EU courts and it'll go on for years and be appealed. Uh, now, the thing is that uh, in the next year or two, German and European gas demand will not increase too much as the, because the economic recovery from the government lockdowns. But after two years, this demand is going to soar. They have the capacity to import LNG, liquefied natural gas, from the U.S., Qatar, anyone else. But two years out, the price of that is going to be much higher. And they're going to need energy more because they're phasing out their nuclear and their own domestic EU gas production is falling off. Uh, at the same time, uh, the European Green Deal is uh, severely affected uh, because uh, many of the funds originally planned for that will now still be used instead to promote economic recovery from lockdowns. And this is why gas from Turkmenistan, given that NS2 has problems, given that the Turkstream 2 has problems, which is another pipeline, has problems for the same reason NS2 does, given that LNG prices are going to go up. Uh, this is why the EU is still interested in the Trans-Caspian Gas Pipeline, the TCGP, sometimes just the TCP. Uh, so uh, there are all the conditions now for the TCGP to the Trans-Caspian Pipeline uh, to to be realized. Uh, and and uh, Europe uh, will welcome Turkmen gas, but if Turkmen gas doesn't, for whatever reason, doesn't get to Europe, it's not going to be the end of the world for Europe. They'll, they'll, it's not going to be a tragedy. They'll find something else. So it's really, um, you know, the ball is in Turkmenistan's court, actually, you know, to, so to say, uh, that it's the economic recession, financial situation resulting from the lockdowns that has brought 
the TCP back onto uh, the uh, agenda where it was kind of falling off before, you could say. So long story short, to answer your question, uh, yes, definitely. The uh, TCP has this opportunity. Uh, Europe is interested. It would make a difference, uh, but that's the balance sheet about what's needed for it to happen. With the ACTAL Treaty keeping out foreign flag ships, the U.S. has no ability at the moment to put U.S. naval ships into the Caspian Sea. So does that mean the U.S. has no Caspian Sea policy, or does the U.S. have a strategic goal for the Caspian Sea? Well, the U.S. came out, uh, I guess it was last year, with a new Central Asian plan, which I think inc which includes Afghanistan. They include Afghanistan and Central Asia because the bureaus of the State Department were reorganized um, uh, about between five and ten years ago. So that now there's one that Central Asia and it includes Afghanistan. Uh, but the, the the main strategic U.S. interest uh, is the northern supply route across the Caspian uh, to Afghanistan via Georgia, Azerbaijan, and so on. That's the principal American strategic interest uh, of the American state of the United States without uh, speaking uh, to uh, whether any of the industrial companies uh, that produce very highly specialized energy capital goods would have an interest, which they do. Uh, and, uh, of course, the U.S. would have an interest if uh, in, in uh, and has a declared interest in helping the EU to diversify its sources of energy supply and the trans the Turkmen uh, Transcaspian gas pipeline would is is an obvious candidate for that. So those and those are the two uh, main uh, uh, prongs, if you will, of of the U.S. interest. There there are other there are others, but but those are the two main ones. And what about China? Beijing's been putting a lot of money into the Central Asian region at the moment. But will that translate to a Caspian Sea policy for Beijing? Well, actually, the Chinese have been present on the Caspian uh, since the mid to late 1990s. Um, they took uh, a majority stake in certain onshore West Kazakhstan fields like uh, Aktyobe and, and others. And they took losses for years in order to keep that foothold. And they eventually succeeded... Was a, I have to say it's a mar it was a marvelous strategic coup, but they eventually succeeded in building. Uh, they negotiated in nineteen. The, the it was signed in nineteen ninety eight, and it was finally completed, I think, in two thousand five. Uh, an oil pipeline that runs all the way from western Kazakhstan across Kazakhstan into western China and across China into central China. Um, and so um, they've uh, been there for some time. And also there, when, after the uh, Turkmen's and the Russians fell out in, I think it was 2009. And so uh, after that, the Turkmen's turned even more definitely toward the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese stake in Turkmenistan is in the eastern part of the country, not on the Caspian Sea. Uh, and they helped develop uh, the... Um, the field, the immense, huge field in eastern Turkmenistan and, and the pipeline going from there. 
so so China's interest, and also now China is interested in the infrastructure which to which you alluded for the commodity transport, uh, the so-called uh, Belt and Road uh, business. But they were doing that before, in a way, before the slogan Belt and Road came up, uh, and uh, they're interested in that. But and they and they keep trying to. Uh, make footholds. There's a port uh, on the Black Sea coast of Georgia called Anatlia, which was to have been developed into a mega port, uh, including a lot of multimodal transit stuff, that um, now it's not clear whether that's going to happen because there was allegedly a lot of corruption. There was a lot of Chinese investment there that no one knew about, and there's a lot of funds that went where no one knows where. Uh, you can imagine where it might have gone. Uh, and so the Chinese, they don't stop. Uh, they've been trying to get a foothold in Azerbaijan since the late 90s. Uh, but uh, they, they, their interest has now, yes, turned into a strategic interest. It was originally energy, but now it's turned into a strategic uh, uh, power projection interest through economic investment. Yes. As it stands now, the other four nations on the Caspian are friendly with Moscow. But will that relationship last forever? And if one of those nations was to eventually turn against Russia, which nation do you think would be the most likely candidate? Well, forever is a long time, but let's just say that relationships souring with Moscow is not likely in the foreseeable future, as we say. Uh, uh, you could go down the list. Uh, Kazakhstan has they export grain to uh, Russia. They export uh, oil through Russia. Uh, there is a long uh, history of uh, cooperation uh, between uh, Russia. Kazakhstan had a special place uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, the Russians, I mean, the, the Soviet lexicon used to refer to, quote unquote, Kazakhstan and Central Asia. They considered Kazakhstan to be a special country, which it is, actually, uh, but it's part of Central Asia. So that's not foreseeable. Turkmenistan is... Uh, in a situation, it's, it's not, uh, it has no reason to turn hostile to Russia. It may not be, not just Turkmenistan, but all of these countries may be unhappy with certain things that Russia may do, but that's international relations. You know, you have partners and you're happy with some of the things they do and you're unhappy with some of the things they do. So uh, Turkmenistan is, is, has no motive to... Uh, express displeasure with Russian affairs. Azerbaijan neither, for the reasons that I discussed previously. And Iran has no capability uh, or interest uh, to, because given the, to borrow Henry Kissinger's infelicitous phrase from 1974 about Bangladesh, which ruined Bangladesh's reputation for decades. I think it's, and, and un, perhaps unjustly, but I do think that it's, it's increasingly apropos to refer to Iran as an economic basket case of their own doing. Uh, and, and it's been in the headlines and people who want to know the details know the details, so I don't have to go into that. Uh, so uh, Iran has no motive. Iran needs all the help it can get from those who can help. Uh, especially under conditions of sanctions. So Iran has no motive to uh, contradict or to make unfriendly noises about Russia. So for the foreseeable future, 
which is an indefinite length of time, uh, but let us say at least five or ten years, there are no foreseeable reasons why any of these countries would want to uh, have unhappy relations with Russia. Put it that way. And my last question. Do you think the Caspian Sea will become more important or less important to the wider geopolitical community over the next two or three decades? I've alluded to this in the reply to one of your questions, previous questions, that the Caspian Sea region is in much more central than it used to be to uh, international relations and to the evolution. It's a key node. It's, it's where a lot of things come together. And we don't have bilateral relations. We don't have a system of bilateral relations anymore. We have networks. Networks have nodes. And this is a key node, and it will become still more so. Now, in a much more material, down-to-earth way, the Caspian Sea region will continue to be important. And uh, Caspian oil and gas-producing states will not lose their geopolitical uh, significance uh, because of their centrality, even though Many Western companies, not all of them, have been uh, withdrawing uh, assets from projects that they were in, selling their assets, selling their stakes in Caspian Sea energy projects. Uh, BP is still there, and it's going to stay there, uh, and others. Uh, it's going to uh, it's going to continue to be central uh, because first the EU will continue to pl to pursue gas supply uh, diversification. It will push for the pipelines of the Southern Gas Corridor to operate at their full capacities. For that to happen, more gas fields in the Caspian, including Turkmenistan, or actually Turkmenistan's gas field is ready to go. They just need to build a pipeline. Uh, need to be, uh, they will want these to operate at their full capacities. Uh, the U.S., despite uh, wishing to promote its own LNG exports, has endorsed, will continue to endorse the EU's efforts, uh, and this will end, diminish Russia's market share. Uh, and second, uh, the consortia that are already invested in the mega projects in the uh, Caspian Sea region uh, need to get their investments back. So they want to ensure a reasonable return on their already sunk costs. So they're not going to abandon it either. Uh, so either they're going to, um, in fact, when they have more capital and when demand rises towards the middle of the decade, either they're going to, in fact, make more uh, investment decisions in uh, what's called brownfield, old uh, uh, fields, uh, like Azerbaijan's offshore sector, or also greenfield, which would be new ones, such as the Trans-Caspian Gas Pipeline. So for all of these reasons, uh, the Caspian Sea region, uh, broadly considered, uh, or what one might, one might, might want to call it the Greater Caspian Sea region, which includes the South Caucasus, it includes uh, southwestern Siberia, it includes western Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan, it includes northern uh, Iran, the broader Caspian Sea region will continue to be geopolitically and strategically important. Uh, and uh, for the more systemic re reasons that I outlined before in a relatively abstract way, uh, I believe that they will, that their importance will in fact increase and certainly not decrease. 
the Caspian Sea will have far more impact on the entirety of Eurasia than we ever thought possible, and every country on it seeks to use it to their own advantage. Iran, desperate for friends and trading partners, sees the Caspian as a source of additional energy resources, and a way to further tie themselves into the Beijing and Moscow-led trading blocks. And with the US sanctions bearing down on them, what other choice do they have? Kazakhstan not only sees the energy potential in the western shores, but also sees an insurance policy in the Caspian. Right now, Kazakhstan is incredibly reliant on Russia to transport its goods through to the European markets. And whilst Moscow and Nur Sultan are tight partners right now, all that's fine. But when storm clouds start appearing on the horizon with Russia, Kazakhstan will require another route into Europe, and that route may be over the Caspian Sea into Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan already holds the biggest city on the sea, and already has the pipelines heading through Turkey from the western shores of the Caspian. The Azeris are setting themselves up to be the alternative gateway into Europe for the Central Asians. Because even if Kazakhstan or Turkmenistan don't use the Azeri option, Russia will have much less leverage over them, knowing they have another direction to travel if pushed too hard. One of the larger major players though will be Turkmenistan, home to the fourth largest gas fields in the entire world. Gas Europe desperately wants. Europe's gas pipelines stretch all the way from London to Baku, thousands of kilometers. But it's just that last hundred kilometers across the floor of the Caspian Sea that stops Turkmenistan being a gas giant. If they could bridge that gap through the Caspian, Ashgabat would be connected to Europe, with everyone from Turkey to Germany being tied to the fate of Turkmenistan. But by doing that, much of the leverage Russia has over Europe in the form of cheap gas will be undermined, greatly weakening their position in the Western Hemisphere. It turns out the secret to breaking Germany's dependence on Moscow may be hidden in 300 kilometers of pipeline across the floor of the Caspian Sea. Thank you so much to everybody who tuned in this week. Last month was our biggest month yet, and that is all thanks to you guys. If you want to support the show on social media, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the handle at the Red Line Pod, or you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Mike Kelly at Oz. The reason this show is possible is 100% because of our amazing Patreon subscribers, who give us a couple of dollars each month to help us run the show. Every single dollar we earn from them goes straight back into the program to help us pay for equipment, website hosting, platforming, and legal fees for the show. Our Patreons are absolutely amazing, and I regularly catch up with them one-on-one, -on -one, so they can ask me their burning questions, or even just chat. So if you want to support the show and jump online for a chat with me, all you have to do is give a couple of dollars a month to the program and help us keep this thing going. We want to keep the show independent and free of sponsors, so we can go after any targets we want, rather than having to pull our punches, as most people do with sponsors. But once again, thank you to the guys and girls who donate to the show. You are absolute legends and you help this thing keep going. A big thanks goes out to our guests for this week. Eugene Chalsovsky was amazing to work with on this piece. And he has done some great videos and informational pieces himself with guys like Stratfor. I highly recommend you go on YouTube and check some of his stuff out. He is one of the most switched on people I have ever come across and I really enjoyed working with him. Hopefully we'll have him back on the show soon. But for now, you can find him on Twitter on at Eugene Chasovsk with SK at the end. Stanislav Prichin is one of the foremost experts when it comes to Russia. In fact, I have referenced his work a number of times in previous episodes, so it was amazing to finally have him on the program. 
He consistently puts out amazing think pieces on Russia, and if anyone can predict the Russians' next move, it would probably be Stanislav. You can find him on Twitter at Stasprichin. Robert M. Cutler was so highly recommended to me by a number of people I look up to, and I can see why. I don't think I've ever met someone with such a thorough understanding of the European energy markets, and how a pipeline here can shift the course of a nation over there. He always puts out amazing articles, including some great work on the recent flare-up in Nagorno-Karabakh, and I highly recommend you check that out. For links to that, you can find Robert on Twitter at Robert M. Cutler. As always, this show would not be possible without my amazing team. And a thanks goes out to Mark for his amazing work on the bumpers as always. Please make sure you go and check out his amazing stuff on Twitter at the handle Climactic. He runs an entire network of shows dedicated to climate change. I also want to thank Joe who helps clean the audio for these episodes. Joe always goes to huge lengths to turn these things around incredibly quickly as deadlines for this show can often be very tight. And I really do highly appreciate his work. You can find Joe on Twitter at JoeHawthorne77. As is tradition, the last thanks goes out to you for listening to the program. Watching the views go up each and every month has been absolutely amazing, and all of your DMs and responses have been highly appreciated. It's this kind of support that really does help boost the show and the social media platforms and get us out to more people. Each and every response, like, share, and heart is what gets this show off the ground. So thank you for all your support to get us to the place we are. We will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you and good night. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.